Decoding Learning Differences with Kimberly Lavelle, and this episode is Rewire the Brain with Barbara Young. Now, Barbara Aerosmith Young is the founder of the Aerosmith Program, which is an assessment process and a suite of cognitive exercises designed to stimulate and strengthen weak areas of cognitive functioning that underlie a range of learning difficulties which has been delivered for 40 plus years throughout the world. Her work, begun in 1978, has been recognized as one of the first examples of the practical application of neuroplasticity, the ability of the brain to change and rewire itself over a lifetime. As the director of Aerosmith School and Aerosmith Program, she continues to develop and refine refine programs for students with learning difficulties. Her vision is that all students struggling with learning will have the opportunity to benefit from cognitive programs utilizing the principles of neuroplasticity, programs that change the brain's capacity to learn and open to these learners a world of possibilities. The genesis of the Aerosmith program's cognitive exercises lies in Barbara Aerosmith Young's journey of discovery and innovation to overcome her severe learning disabilities Her inspirational book, The Woman Who Changed Her Brain, has become an international bestseller. And while our focus, of course, is on children and students, she has a lot of work with adults as well. So it might be something you are interested in yourself. I definitely took her assessment tool myself because I was curious. Um, And it's a fascinating conversation. So I hope you enjoy. Good morning, uh, Barbara. It's so great to have you on. Um, your story is so fascinating, so I'm very excited to share that with my audience. Um, can you very briefly <laughs> share that story? I mean, I I also want to encourage everybody, you have this lovely book that is an illustrated story, and I think that's a great a little bit more in depth, but still very accessible for everyone of all ages, it seems. Um, but for the purposes of our discussion, can you give everyone a quick a quick summary of your story? Absolutely, yes. Um, so my story begins many years ago in the, the 1950s when I started uh, grade one uh, in Canada. Um, and I was identified in grade one as having a mental block because at that time there wasn't even the concept of a learning disability, right? This this predated that concept. So my grade one teacher uh, informed me and my mother that, you know, that I had a mental block and being quite literal, I actually thought I had a piece of wood, like a children's cube in my head. And later I learned, no, I didn't have a piece of wood in my head, but I had blockages. I had parts of my brain that weren't working uh, at the level they ideally uh, were designed to work at. But in grade one, uh, I struggled to learn how to read. I struggled to learn how to write. I struggled mathematics. So if somebody gave me 12 and 14 to add, I'd add the four and the one and then the one and then the two, like just just random, like kind of my world was a series of random events. Um, And 
you know, in grade one, I feel like I was given a life sentence. My teacher told my mother not to have high expectations for me, that all of my learning would be a struggle. So, you know, I certainly spent uh, a significant amount of grade one hiding out in the washroom, which I think, you know, worked for me and it worked for my teacher. Um, I got the strap in those days, you know, that because, uh, you know, when I wrote everything backwards, I would make my notebooks really messy because my hand was sweaty and it would, you know, smear uh, the, the ink. Um, and my teacher thought I was doing this deliberately. Well, you know, it was just, the way my brain worked, right? Uh, so that was that was my beginnings. And I would say, you know, I, I think the teacher was wrong in that I didn't amount to much in my life. I hope I, I disproved that. And though she was right in that all of my education was a struggle. I, I can't say, uh, you know, if I think on it, was there a day that I actually enjoyed school? Maybe, maybe somewhere in there, but they were few and far between. Um, and my mother was an educator, so she was determined that her daughter was going to learn how to read and write and do basic math. And the school, my elementary school, was right across the street. I could look out of the living room window of my house, and there was the school. So I would come home at lunch, and I would come home after school, and my mother would have flashcards, right? So she would hold up letters and numbers, and, and eventually I learned how to read, I learned how to write, I learned how to do basic mathematics, and, you know, I wasn't grateful at the time, but I'm grateful now uh, to all that effort that my mother put into ensuring that I had those basic rudimentary skills. However, it didn't address the learning difficulty. I mean, I still struggled conceptually, understanding, you know, grasping concepts, understanding what things meant. Um, you know, I had a really good visual memory, almost photographic, and a really good auditory memory. So really memory is what got me through uh, most of my schooling. I would memorize all of my notebooks from page one to the last page. And then when I wrote an exam, I would flip through my brain to try to find a match to the information that was in my memory to the information that was in the question. And sometimes I did a really good match and got 100%. Sometimes I did a really bad match because I didn't really understand the question uh, and I might get 10%. Um, and my teachers would conclude that um, I hadn't worked for that 10%. Well, I worked equally hard to get that 10% as I did the 100%. It was just, you know, again, the way my brain was wired and my understanding. So, you know, that was my schooling. I, I had later, I learned, I had multiple learning difficulties. Um, you know, the part of the brain attaches meaning, comprehension, um, wasn't working the way it was designed. I often say it was kind of like my translator was broken. So, you know, if someone spoke to me and, you know, if they asked me, you know, what color is my dress, I could answer that because it's very concrete. But anything abstract, um, you know, was really, really a challenge. So things like science, like mathematics, even, you know, themes in literature, those were, those were all, all challenging. So I struggled with social relations because I didn't really understand why people did things. Um, and then I didn't understand if they talked to me really what, what they meant. So I spent a lot of time smiling and hoping <laughs> that people would leave me alone. Um, and I had a, a, a difficulty with knowing where the left side of my body was in space. So I was very clumsy. I would bump into things, trip over my feet, uh, what I call a kinesthetic difficulty. So sports weren't an outlet for me. So I wasn't really good 
athletically. I wasn't good um, in concepts or understanding things, and I struggled socially. So I, I was quite isolated growing up. Um, you know, I could handle maybe one friend, but any more that was way too complex uh, for me. So yeah, so that's that was kind of my my story and my schooling. Um, and I also one other. So my mother was really instrumental, and my father was a scientist and an inventor. And he had this belief. He said, if there's a problem in the world and no solution, he said, it's your responsibility to go out and find a solution. And then he said something that has I've held very dear to me. He said, the rest of the world tells you you can't do it. He said, don't listen. He said, this is how science goes forward. It doesn't listen to conventional wisdom. And so as I started to develop first the program for myself to address my learning difficulties and heard from my professors at university, uh, all sorts of people, this is not possible. There's no neuroplasticity. Your brain is fixed, you know, at your age. Um, and even at that point, they didn't think learning difficulties had anything to do with the brain because this was in now the 1970s. Um, I held on to what my father had said and said, I'm going to go out and try and I'm not going to listen because I need to see if I can find a solution. So that you know, my parents were critical in helping me on the path to uh, overcome my learning difficulties and then take this work out into the world. Okay, so really briefly, can you tell everyone what you did to overcome your difficulties? Yes, so um, I was reading two lines of research, one coming out of Russia, and this was a brilliant uh, neuropsychologist, Alexander Luria, and he wrote a book called The Man with the Shattered World, which was describing a Russian soldier in World War II that had a very localized brain injury. And as I read this man's journal, I thought, I'm writing the same journal, right? So now I knew it was my brain, because before I knew I had significant problems, but if you're gonna solve a problem, you need to know where's the source of the problem. So that, that was the first clue. Okay, something in my brain. I knew I didn't have a piece of shrapnel in my brain, but for some reason it wasn't, that part wasn't working. And then I was reading Mark Rosenschweig's research coming out of Berkeley, and he was looking at neuroplasticity with rats. And he found that if you put rats in a really stimulating, enriched environment, um, their brains changed functionally and physiologically. They became better at learning mazes. So I thought if rats have neuroplasticity, surely humans must. And this was again, 1977. And I was told, no, that's not the case. But I remembered what my father said, go out and try. And so I created the first exercise. Um, and what Luria had talked about with this part of the brain was you couldn't tell time. I was now 26 years old. I still couldn't tell time. I couldn't read a watch because it's a relationship between the hour hand and the minute hand. And I couldn't connect pieces of information. I couldn't see um, you know, how things related. I had no insight. Um, so I created an exercise with clocks. You know, um, And eventually I learned how to tell time because you know, I did this for hundreds of hours. But over time, as I added more and more hands, and now we have actually a 10-handed clock, um, I forced my brain to process multiple relationships very quickly. So it was like a workout for that part of the brain. The goal wasn't to tell time. The 
goal was force my brain to process relationships. And at a certain point, it was like blinders came off. All of a sudden, I could listen to a conversation and I could understand it in real time. Whereas before I lived in what I called lag time, I was always behind everybody else and sometimes I never understood. Now I could listen, I could understand, I could actually make an appropriate comment, I could understand their comment back to me. <clears throat> it was so powerful. For the first time, I was part of human discourse. Um, and then I went back and taught myself all of mathematics because now I could grasp concepts. Um, it, it was just so powerful. So I knew there must be human neuroplasticity because I worked really, really hard. And with the best will in the world, I couldn't do these things that now I could do after I changed my brain. So then I created two more programs. Um, one where I had to do all sorts of drawings with my eyes closed to um, strengthen that part of my brain that did sensory processing and understood where my body was in space. And so I can play sports. I don't bang into walls. Uh, you know, I don't dent my car because I don't know where the car is, you know, on the left side, just like I didn't know my body. And then I created an exercise for um, spatial reasoning because I couldn't read maps. I couldn't construct Ikea furniture. I couldn't build from a two-dimensional plan into three-dimensional representation. Um, and then I thought, wow, like I saw all these things change and I thought I need to take this work out into the world and help other people who some had the same problems I had, some different. And that was the, the beginning of my work, which is now all around the world. We train uh, educators to bring this work into their learning centers, their schools, um, so children have access. That is so incredible. Um, okay. So knowing what you know now, is there anything different that you wish your parents or teachers had done differently to help you when you were a child? It's a really good question. I, um, I, I wish, you know, maybe my grade one teacher had been a little more compassionate, but it was the times, right? She didn't know. She was doing the best practice that that she knew she I, I was an anomaly I like you know she was a I think this was her first or second year teaching and she'd never met anybody whose brain was wired like mine um so you know it, it wasn't you know it was, she was doing the best that she could given you know the the challenges that that I had and the knowledge that was available at that time so and I I think um you know my parents if they hadn't done what they did I, I don't want to think about where where I might be maybe I would wish you know that there was more open conversations around learning difficulties but again there just wasn't the knowledge like it wasn't until I think the late 60s early 70s that people started this concept of a learning disability or learning difficulty so um you know, I just kind of have to accept that that was the knowledge and the understanding at the time. And then I think, you know, some people ask, you know, would I have preferred not to have been born with the really significant challenges I had? Like I, I've met people who've had strokes and some of my difficulties were equal, like they, they were very severe. Um, but I can't say yes, that I wished I had been born without those difficulties because it led me to where I am now. Like it really, um, is that nature nurture. So the nature of my difficulties led me to create this work and the nurture of my parents and their belief systems supported me in creating this work. So, you know, I, I think this was my life path. 
um, to to do this work. And so, um, you know, it was painful at points. Um, and here I am. How much so I was, <clears throat> as I was kind of reading your story, listening to your story, I was thinking about the fact that in the moment, you decided like, I can change my brain. So way before Carol Dweck's work on growth mindset, you had a growth mindset of my brain can change. I can figure this out. And in Carol Dweck's work, we know that, and others, we know that having that belief is, it's kind of like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Like if you have a fixed mindset, oh, I can't change. I can't learn anything. Then you're not going to learn anything or not much. And if you have a growth mindset, you have that ability to like really grow and learn. What are your thoughts on that? Like, do you think that that played an important role or how important of a role do you think that played? I think it played a really important role. And again, there I credit my father um, because, you know, he would come home with his, um, like he had patents, like he he conditioned electricity. I don't understand really all of what he did, but he would come with these huge blueprints and diagrams and lay them on the, um, you know, the living room floor. And I caught his excitement, like his, his, you know, even though I didn't understand anything, but his excitement in the creative process, which is like that growth mindset, like the, the excitement of, creating something that didn't exist, right? Like, you know, um, you know, kind of that possibility thinking growth mindset. I mean, we didn't have a terminology for right. it at the time, right. but it was infectious. Like, and, and so he instilled that in me. And again, that, that belief system, if there's a problem, mm -hmm. go out and create a solution. And it's your responsibility to do that. Like, and this is how, you know, the world progresses and science goes forward. And that absolutely is a growth mindset. So it, it was part of, of, you know, my family experience. So that, that was really fundamental um, in supporting me in creating this work. And, and certainly as I was creating it, I had lots and lots and lots of people tell me I was crazy. You know, this is ridiculous. This is not possible. But again, I held on to that, you know, that message that my father had given me. Um, and, and I didn't know if it was going to be successful. I had, I really, it was like in science, you create a hypothesis, you, you say, based on this information, it's possible, this might be possible. Um, and, but I figured I have to try because my life was um, getting more and more constricted. You know, I was now in graduate school. I was uh, sleeping four hours a night, working 20 hours a day, seven days a week. I, you know, would have pneumonia like several times every winter because, you know, driving my body beyond what was um, humanly possible. I developed a, a, an immune system disorder. Um, you know, it was it was a huge cost. Having this learning difficulty was a huge cost to me emotionally, um, physically. And so I thought I have to try. I may not be successful because sometimes, you know, you aren't when you set a hypothesis and experiment, but I have to try. And, you know, I, I was successful. And, and over the history of developing this work, there's sometimes things have ended up in the waste paper basket, you know, um, and then you go back to the drawing board. I mean, and and you refine it or you try something different, um, and until you know you get the outcomes that one expects to um, change the brain. I mean, and to me, the our brain 
filters our perceptions of ourselves, our understanding of other people, our understanding of our world, our relationship to the world. It's no matter what we're doing, our brain is involved, uh, you know, across our day and we can't kind of escape it. Like we carry it everywhere we go. And the power, if we can harness neuroplasticity and change the brain, to me, it's probably one of the most positive and optimistic developments, certainly in my lifetime, and huge applications. I mean, my work is in learning difficulties, but we're also doing research in addiction and seeing the benefit. We're doing research uh, long-haul COVID that's affected people cognitively, seeing the benefit. Um, you know, situations where there's been uh, spousal abuse and, and trauma to the head, we're seeing benefits. Uh, car accident, you know, stroke. Um, like a whole range. There's other research, not my research, looking at chronic pain and neuroplasticity. Uh, to me, it's just incredibly promising. This organ that when I grew up, I was told was fixed. And basically you got a problem with it. You got to live with it. Well, we know that's not the case. And how hopeful is that? Yeah. Yeah. I love it. I, I, I think your story is fascinating and, and I agree. It's really important for the world. It's, it's shaped so much of of like my work as a you know special education teacher now a tutor and and consultant like knowing that we can change the brain does does impact things and i do still see a lot of a lot of fixed mindset that wording and beliefs even if People will say, oh, yeah, you know, there's neuroplasticity. But then the way they talk about a student does sound permanent. Like, mm -hmm. well, yeah, this is this is the part of the IQ that doesn't really change. And things like that where they've got this this fixed mindset. So it is it's interesting. So I, I definitely see that we are in we are still in that shift of realizing the true potential of of neuroplasticity's ability to change our brain. Um, I think especially when it's partnered with that growth mindset of I can change my brain, I will change my brain um, and all of your work in figuring out those those programs. So if a parent is listening right now and they're like, which I'm guessing a lot of them are listening and thinking, my child is struggling. What can I start doing right now to support my child's learning? And what can I do to rewire their brain so that they're not struggling? And, and what does that look like? What is that path for them? Mm -hmm. So I, I think a number of things. I think one, listen very deeply to your child, right? I, I, um, I mean, parents spend a lot of time with their children. And so listen very deeply. If your child is saying that they're, they're struggling or exhibiting behaviors, right? Where, you know, the thing is you see them excelling in certain areas, but other areas that they avoid or they're backing away. Well, we all have mastery motivation. So if there's something the child is avoiding or backing away from or not attending to, there's probably a good reason. So it's kind of listening to your child, observing and going in and having a conversation to try to kind of get to the, the um, basis of what is going on in that, that child's life, advocating for your child. Like, you know, I, how often do I hear <clears throat> oh, that mother's just overly concerned or, you know, overly dramatic. No, like mothers know their children, right? So, you know, go in and advocate with your teacher for your child uh, and help the child or the teacher really understand 
what your child's experience is like because I think the first place is is really understanding um, because often we we generalize like you know if a child's struggling we think well it's everywhere but no it's probably in this particular area because of whatever cognitive function uh, isn't performing on par so that's the first level we also have a questionnaire on our website if people are are interested that's this free confidential that you can fill out for your child or an adult can fill out for themselves i've had spouses sometimes fill it out and it can be a very interesting conversation yeah um, I, and, I went online and did it, oh, I love oh, it. Okay. yes so so go ahead like do that and share it with your school also yeah. you know, we have people that are happy to have a conversation with you. We, you know, we're in educational organizations around the world. I think there is one in uh, the San Francisco area. Um, so reach out if you've done the questionnaire and you have questions, you know, to have a conversation, uh, you know, to help understand what that cognitive profile means. Because, you know, we, we have multiple different cognitive functions and some can be working really well, some average and some, you know, are weaker. And they're, you know, creating a drag on the system. So I think understanding is is the first level. Um, and if that cognitive questionnaire can help, great. And then, you know, the the and so with that information, you know, and if the teacher is provided with that information, they can start maybe modifying how they deliver the curriculum to the child. Now that's not changing the child's brain, but it's having more insight and understanding as to the best way that child learns given their current cognitive profile. The next piece is, um, is you know, of interest. So we have online programs. I mean, that was one of the things that COVID drove us to because we were in multiple schools all around the world and all of a sudden the doors closed and we had students who we needed to continue to provide the program to. So in three weeks in March 2020, we went online all around the world and then we created a development community with the educators. What would you like to see? How can we improve this? Uh, and then I'm a big research geek. So I looked at all of the data Data over the last um, two to three years, and we're getting exactly the same results in the online. So we have a more independent online, we have a virtual classroom where you come into a classroom online with facilitators, and then we have the in-person experience. So it, it almost doesn't matter where the child is in the world, they can access um, this work. And we have multiple options, uh, you know, to try to um, make this work accessible. And then the other thing is go to your school and advocate, say, I'd like to see a cognitive program in my school because, and parents have been very successful. I mean, a lot of the schools that we're in, it's because, you know, mother went and knocked on that door and said, hey, I want you to look at this. Um, we go to school to learn, we learn with our brain. It's time we put the brain into the education equation, not just as a kind of a passive vehicle, but something as the child is learning, we can actually change the brain. And we're doing studies in New Zealand, studies in Madrid and Spain, where students in grade one, 30 minutes a day, five days a week, are doing a developmentally appropriate cognitive exercise, grade two a different one, grade three a different one. and those students are outperforming students in the same grade not getting the cognitive exercise in really like processing speed, selective attention, working memory, like really critical cognitive abilities, not just for grade one, grade two, grade three, but for the rest of their life. Um, so I think start with 
listening and advocating and understanding uh, than you know advocating lobbying the school to say hey let's look at cognitive programming as an integral part of education and look at some of our online or even in-person offerings that might be in location uh, where the the parent is and if not then we've got the online options um, you know to access this work yeah um I, I love that and I love that idea of of putting it into the schools because I know that's that's one thing that I've always been fascinated by the brain. So like when I was in college, I was I knew I wanted to be a teacher, but I also got a degree in psychology and I'm always like like craving that information. I'm always trying to figure out like what is going on in the brain of my students. How do I really help them? Like, yes, there's, you know, various teaching methods, but is it really helping them long term and how big and how and how do we overcome the underlying problem that's making learning so difficult for them? Mm -hmm. um, besides, you know, flashcards to get them to learn something, what can what else can we do that's deeper and more impactful for long term? So I, I love that. Um, I'm I'm definitely interested in finding out more about all of this. Um, one thing I think I heard you say was that you're able to improve children's working memory. And previously I had heard that you're only able, that the research, but I also always know research is always changing and growing. And sometimes it's, we just haven't figured it out yet. Previously, my understanding on working memory was they, they're saying you can improve working memory for a specific task and the child's ability, their, their working memory for that task will improve, but it won't generalize to improving working memory overall, which I always found strange because mm -hmm. most things kind of generalize. Mm -hmm. um, do you, do you have any information or research or anything that comes to mind about, about that? Yeah. So my view on working memory maybe it's a little different from the field i believe every um, higher order cognitive function has an aspect of working memory so whether uh, and a lot of it is is driven by the prefrontal cortex right like you know your left and right prefrontal cortex versus the executive functioning of the brain is you know that problem solving strategizing it's the part of the brain you know you're you're given a problem to solve and what part of the brain activates first is the prefrontal cortex it's kind of setting the stage okay how do i tackle this problem you know what things what resources do i need to bring to bear what other parts of my brain do i need to bring online like if it's a math problem then i need to bring certain areas online to be able to solve that if it's a social problem i've got to bring other areas so working memory is kind of a it's also a combination of the prefrontal cortex which is that kind of organizer driver uh, activator of the brain and then the other regions of the brain in the neural networks that need to, um, you know, hold information or operate on information to solve the problem. So there is no, to me, there's no one working memory, like, you know, and that's why I've, I've probably over my career looked at thousands of psychoed reports, like thousands of them, um, you know, and one says, oh, there's a working memory problem. Well, you look at it, well, actually, it was an auditory 
um, version of a working memory and that person had an auditory memory difficulty. So of course they're gonna have a problem there or some it's numbers or some it's um, you know letters. So it really depends on the, the nature of the assessment that's saying whether there's a working memory problem or not. But, and, and it's because it's really a fluid, to me, a fluid concept. It's, there's a problem to solve. Working memory is you've got to hold um, elements in your mind's eye or in your mind and operate on them to be able to solve that problem. So it depends on what's the problem to solve and what cognitive functions do I need? Because if it's a social problem, you're probably not going to call on those regions that are related to calculation or computation, right? Or if it's a spatial problem, like you're building a bridge, you're going to call in, you know, a bunch of elements related to the right hemisphere to be able to, to solve that. So, uh, and what we're seeing in our work is as we change the cognitive functions. So our program can work on 19 different cognitive functions. I have different programs for each of those to strengthen them. And as they're, they're strengthened, then they can come into the problem solving process, whatever it is, where they're required. It's kind of like building blocks. Like when we read, there are nine different cognitive functions that have to all operate to be able to read. So, you know, you can see a child with a, you know, identified with a reading difficulty, or you can see three children identified with reading difficulty, and they can have different profiles because they, this one may have three of those nine areas underperforming. This other one may have three different of those nine areas underperforming. And that's why I always argue there's no one size fits all. And we have to go under the label. So under the label of dyslexia, under the label of dyscalculia, under the label of dysgraphia, to understand for that individual, which specific cognitive functions are underperforming, because that's what we need to strengthen. And then they can read or they can write or um, they can handle numbers. Um, and, you know, we've worked with students as young as five and into their 90s, right? And to me, it's exciting. Like there's neuroplasticity across our lifespan. So, you know, if there's been something that's niggled at somebody and they're 75, it's never too late to strengthen, you know, strengthen a part of your brain. I had a professor uh, she was in the medical department at the University of Toronto in the anatomy, a professor of anatomy, and she'd never been able to recognize faces. So at 74, she came in and decided, I want to do this, right? And we have a program for facial recognition for that part of the brain. Uh, she worked through it and she made the same progress as a 15-year-old, right? And now she can recognize faces and she, you know, when she goes to a party, she doesn't feel awkward because she recognizes who those people are. Um, so if we start with understanding what's the job of that cognitive function, we can create an exercise or an activity to stimulate and work it, just like you know physiotherapy for a specific muscle group. Um, and then we can, we can strengthen it. And whatever job that function has, um, it allows the learning to go forward because it's now operating within the neural network effectively. So uh, I don't know if that answered your question on working memory, sort of in a roundabout way, but it, it's complex. But these cognitive functions that we can strengthen are components that are brought into working memory tasks to solve problems. Yeah, no, I think that 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 did, because I think it makes sense. I think what you're saying still aligns with what the research is saying. And it's something where we don't then have to look at the research and say, well, we just can't really work on it. It's we can work on it on and it is sort of 
you know, you're, you're saying it is, it's dependent on what that specific task is. Um, and I think it definitely is what, what we're, we're seeing of the kid is really struggling in this specific area. And, and then, yeah, we throw the blanket working memory on it. But I, I agree that it, it is, it is multiple parts of the brain that are working together. So I think that'll makes a lot of sense. Um, I also, you know, no one size, no, no one size fits all. Like I, I agree with that because, and the labeling, you know, I've got, I, I hear parents talk about like, oh, but my child needs this, um, needs to be identified as dyslexic or the school won't know how to teach them. I was like, but I won't know how to teach them if you tell me they're dyslexic. Like I need more than that. I need more details than that. Um, because it, there are, like you're saying, there's different there's different ha things that are happening in the brain. And there's a majority of kids with dyslexia that are all kind of struggling with this cognitive function, but there's some that it's something completely different and, and how it, how it's happening makes such a difference. Um, so I, I think you're so right. And like you said before, you know, bringing the brain into education and learning is, is critical and keeping that in mind that, there, there is, there is no one size fits all. That's like when I'm tutoring, I don't use any one program because I need to individualize to every single child. Um, Absolutely. I think that's really, really key. And what I say to parents, if you go to somebody and they say, this one program is going to fix everything. I said, walk out the door because right. it would be lovely if that was the case, but our brain is incredibly complex. Like it, it, just doesn't work that way. So I think you're absolutely right. There's no, there is no one size fits all. And one of the, one of my um, staff, my executive directors, just doing a presentation in Medellin, Colombia, not uh, online, right, to a big, big global education forum. And, you know, it's on equity in education. And I said, you know, what is the what is the great equalizer is our brain. Like every single one of us has a brain. Like we may not have the same economic factors. We may not have, you know, the same access to different resources, but we all have access to a brain. And if we can, again, put the brain in the education equation, we give all of these individuals an equal opportunity to excel and, and, you know, to, to function. I think what would my life have been like if in grade one, you know, there was a cognitive exercise and in grade two, another one in grade three, I would never, you know, have had, you know, the social emotional um, fallout, you know, that I had with my learning difficulties. Like, you know, I, I, I ended up in therapy for a number of years just because of the trauma of, of my struggles, um, you know, and, and it just, it just normalizes like we all go to school we go to school to learn we learn with our brain so everybody is working their brain so there's no stigma oh i've got to go to a special place you know to get this kind of help because every child can can benefit so i think you know our brain is our great equalizer if we just um put it into the education equation. And I think your comment earlier about, you know, paradigm shift. We are, I mean, I've been making these arguments for 40 plus years, <laughs> but in 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 terms of a paradigm shift, that's not a long time. You know, it feels yeah. like a long time, but it, it's it's coming. And you know, they've been silos like neuroscience is over here in this silo, education is over here. And it, it's now I think we're we're starting to bring the information together. And I, I find like the educators that 
I get the privilege to meet all around the world who are implementing this, this work, um, they got into education because they want to make a difference in the lives of their students. And this work really allows them to do that and see, um, you know, see those differences. Uh, so they're, they're really excited and, and they embrace it, but they weren't educated in teacher's college on this kind of work. So, you know, my hope is that this becomes a normal part of teacher's education as well. So, so while it was, so while we agree, no one size fits all, what I'm now wondering is, would it benefit all to have as part of their education going through the grades, you know, well, right now we're working on reading, right now we're working on math, right now we're doing cognitive exercise A, and working through 19 different cognitive exercises over the years um, that are working those kinds of, or is that a waste of time for too many kids? Is it, you know, what, what would your vision be? Like, would yeah. you want it to be that generalized or do we need to stay specific to each kid? I, I would start with being generalized because we have hundreds of levels in each each of the cognitive exercises. So the individual, if they struggle, they're like, or don't struggle, they're going to hit their level very quickly. That's the, the right one where the brain's engaged and it's driving neuroplastic change. So whether they have a difficulty, whether they're average, or even whether they're gifted, we have levels that they will meet, which then will um, push their brains, which is the basis for all learning. And we picked exercises. So in grade one, it's the part of the brain that's involved in motor planning, which is in writing, eye tracking and reading. In grade two, we've picked um, the what I call symbol recognition. It's the part of the brain that holds visual symbol patterns, which is critical for spelling, for reading, even learning math formula, chemical equations, any kind of visual template learning. Grade three, the part of the brain that's related to quantification and numeracy. So we've picked, you know, cognitive functions that are appropriate for what the demand and education is at, at that time. And we have so many levels that all children can, um, can benefit. And then for those students, you know, who like myself, maybe needed a bit of extra work, I would see having a cognitive classroom that's, that's running, that students can come in and out of over the course of the day, for maybe one or two more periods, like because maybe they need a couple of more areas than just the area that's being worked on um, in that in that class. So then that would meet those students' needs that have more significant difficulties, and they would also be getting um, work in the regular classroom. And all the students, even the, the ones that don't have difficulties, benefit. And that's that's what we've seen in in the research that all of these students. Um, benefit. And then it's just normal. Like you go to school to learn and you work your brain at the same time you're learning. So again, we remove the stigma because there's still a tremendous um, amount of stigma related. I'm sure you know that in your work. I see it when I go around the world um, and meet with students. Uh, and that kind of breaks my heart. Like I thought, yeah, I understood in the 50s and 60s because we didn't know much, but to actually see it today. Uh, and I think this could help address that because it's just a normal part of education. Right. So is, are there schools that you guys have gone into that have done this where everybody in grade one is working on this and plus some extra is, are there schools doing that? 
Yes, there's a school uh, in Madrid in Spain that's doing it. Uh, there's a school in Wellington, New Zealand that's doing it. And then we've done a number of schools where they haven't done what I, like the whole model, but they've maybe picked one grade. So, so there are multiple schools. There have been schools in Canada, the United States um, that maybe have done it in grades two or three. Uh, and then there was a school in Washington State um, outside of Seattle that did an elective for students in grades six to 11. So they could pick an elective to work on uh, the part of the brain that's related to reasoning, um, processing speed, cognitive efficiency, insight, um, and we got great results. So, so yes, and now um, I've been talking quite a bit about this. So now there are a number of schools that for this coming uh, school year want to implement this model. So I'm really, really excited. Like it's, it's like my mantra, put the brain in the education equation. Yes. Um, you know, as the great equalizer and, and starting to see it. And actually in my book, um, my vision in the first edition of my book uh, in the last chapter was exactly that model. But I thought, I'm never going to see this in my lifetime. I thought this is like really bold and, and out there. And now we have schools doing it. So I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic. Yeah, I think that's that's very exciting. Um, and I'm I'd love to to dig into to more of that what you know what their results are. Um it's that's fascinating. What was the other thing that came to mind that I wanted to ask you about with that though? Um oh what is so when it's in the schools, I guess I'm wondering like the delivery of the the programs. Is it mm -hmm. always computer-based? that they're doing activities with the computer or on the computer? Is it always an in-person thing? Is there a combination? Is there like physical manipulatives? Like what is, what does it look like? <laughs> what does it look like? So a range. So some are pencil and paper activities. It depends really what cognitive function we're trying to address and what the best delivery method to address that is. Uh, yes. Some are auditory, so it's listening to things and having to go through a whole process. Some are computer-based. So what we have currently is that the students right in the regular classroom, so they're in their grade three classroom, uh, one period a day, uh, five days a week, you know, they're either working on a computer exercise and there's a teacher in the room that's, that's trained to um, monitor and facilitate and support the, the students, but it's, it's like exercise. So it's not like a teacher standing at the front of the class teaching a lesson on you know, addition. It's the teacher is really more like a facilitator and a coach for this, um, ensuring that the student is engaged, you know, moving through the levels, doing the activity and the exercise. And there's a lot of mastery motivation built in um, because you have to keep the students engaged. So they they master levels and the computer screen bursts into, you know, congratulations. Um, some students are doing a, you know, pencil and paper activity. Uh, yeah, so it's they just switch out of doing curricular activities to doing a cognitive activity for 30 minutes um, each day. And I can, I can send you a link to some of our, our research showing the results of, of this model um, in, in the classroom. It's, it's very, very powerful. And then it's just, again, it's just a normal part of uh, of education and the, you know, that we train the teachers, we've got online training. Um, so they know how to deliver it to their students in the classroom as, you know, they do reading, writing, arithmetic and 
brain exercise or cognitive exercise. Um, and, and they get excited, right? Like, wow, like I'm, I'm changing my brain. Again, you talk about that growth mindset. Some of the research we did, we used um, some of Carol Dweck's measures and found these students develop a growth mindset because you can't be in a program where you're changing your brain and think you're, you're you know, your mind is fixed, right? It, it's, right. it's kind of counterintuitive. Um, you know, and they develop locus of control, like where they saw themselves as agents of change in their lives, um, more happiness, even reduction in cortisol. We measured cortisol um, because they were less stressed. These were students with learning difficulties, right? Um, and having a learning difficulty is a stressor that you can't really escape very effectively. And so the fact that the students were reporting all these changes, parents were observing changes, and physiologically, their body was registering that change with reduction in cortisol. So, um, yeah, it has really big implications. Yeah, I, that's that's such a beautiful thing because that's always one of the difficulties is those kids already have a learning disability, so then they start feeling badly about themselves and having stress, which then is shutting down more of their ability to learn and just puts them further behind and makes them feel worse. And it's like this horrible snowball effect that and I've, I've seen that you know when we are able to get kids starting to make progress they can suddenly make a lot of progress because they can suddenly believe that they can make progress um so I think that's that's so exciting that pairing that all with with these cognitive um programs cognitive functions um so so how long have those programs been in place in the schools? I know you've been doing it for a very long time with individuals. I'm just wondering about the how long the schools have been working on it. Yeah, so I, I started um, yeah, many, many years ago. And I think it was about 1995 that I thought, I have to, like I have my school in Toronto. But I thought I have to take this out into the world, right? Just to, to make it accessible. So then I started working with, uh, you know, schools, um, training teachers, you know, learning the system, uh, like how, how do I do that? Um, and so it, it was kind of a progressive journey. So we started working with schools and bringing it to more schools. And this was just in Canada, then moving into the United States, then Australia, New Zealand. I think we're in 13 countries right now. Um, so, and then I'm just my basic nature, like, I like to develop things. So I would look at the models and think, okay, yes, we have the cognitive classroom because that's the first model I created. So the, the students, there'd be a cognitive classroom running all day, the students coming in and out, uh, doing the work. And then, then I got this idea of the, what I call the whole cohort model where the students are just doing it in their regular classroom. And I think we started that probably maybe six years ago. I'm not sure exactly, six or seven. Uh, but again, just starting in one grade and doing some research and, and looking at the, the outcomes um, and then having lots of conversations because it takes an educator that's visionary to say, hey, yes, I'm going to put this you know, from grades one to grade six. And I met a very visionary education educator uh, in Madrid and also one in uh, New Zealand, because I would talk about this when I traveled. And they said, yes, let's try it you know, through the multiple grades. And we've done research and shown the benefit. And now more schools are, are um, 
coming on board. So it's, it's that one has probably been about six years that we've been uh, trialing. And I'm a big um, proponent of trialing things, doing research, you know, the evidence base to show that, yes, this is, is a, a benefit um, before I implement it really, really widely. And we're um, with a different population, hopefully starting a research study in October in Madrid with young offenders, right? Uh, individuals age 14 to 18 that are starting to, uh, like youth at risk, getting identified by the juvenile justice system. And um, so I'm really, really excited. We'll do imaging of their brains. We'll look at cognitive measures. Four months, they'll be doing one of the cognitive exercises that changes consequential thinking, um, insight. You know, I, I have uh, I've, I've had a few cases, like individual cases, where I've seen incredible benefits. So now this will be, you know, um, doing an experiment. So I'm really excited about that. Like I'm really always looking at you know, how can my work be a benefit to humanity? And uh, so pushing the boundaries, and we did a, a study in Tasmania, uh, students um, that had had significant trauma, like really, really significant emotional trauma. Um, and so their learning had shut down, like, you know, we know that trauma affects the brain. Um, and we found as they went through the work, they started to accelerate in the rate of learning, cognition changed. Um, so really, yeah, really excited. So I'm always looking at uh, how can we make this work accessible um, and what groups of individuals can benefit from this work. I, I love that. Um, I'm so excited to keep following your work and see what's, what's happening. Um, and yeah, I, I, it's, it's very exciting. The, I think it's, it's an approach that has been missing even though you've been there trying to do it for a long time, I, I'm excited that it's, that it's gaining momentum because I think it's a general, it's a piece that's missing in most schools. Um, there's too much like, oh, well, they're learning. And then we just hand them like more flashcards or something that, and there are other approaches that are mm -hmm. helpful, but then sometimes they get locked into this program and this one program is supposed to fix everybody with dyslexia. And we know that, like we've said, it's not going to work. Um, okay, well, <laughs> we I want to wrap this up, but I mean, I also don't want to wrap this up. Need to wrap this up. Um, okay, so any last pieces of words of wisdom, advice that you want to give to any parents or educators that are listening today? Yeah, I, I think... Um... You know, as I said earlier, like, listen deeply to your children and listen deeply to your students, right? And and not make assumptions. Like every time I make an assumption, I, I usually regret it. Uh, and it's human nature to make assumptions or lump, you know, individuals into categories because it just makes things easier. But really, listen deeply to your children and to your students and observe. Like you know, they're going to teach you a great deal. Like I have learned so much from uh, the individuals that I've worked with over the years and they were instrumental in helping me create my work because it, I listened very deeply and we kind of became partners in, in developing this work. So I think that would be, um, you know, my first piece of advice. And then the others around growth mindset that you talked about that, that really supporting 
um, your child or your student in, in developing a growth mindset, because that's going to serve them for the rest of their life. Yes. Beautiful. Okay. I will definitely, um, encourage everyone check out the show notes. I'll have all the links to all of the websites and, um, all those resources, the, the cognitive questionnaire that everybody can do. That was, um, fun and simple. And it was just like, kind of get, I mean, I just did it on myself and just like gaining insight, like even just the questions of just thinking through like, okay, how much of a problem is this for me? Like just that is, is that, is that beginning piece like you talked about of that understanding. So I love that. Um, We'll encourage everyone to go do the questionnaire and then, and then move progress from there and contact you from there. Um, All right. Well, thank you so much for being on, Barbara. Oh, well, thank you. I really, really um, appreciate you having me on, uh, you know, because my goal is to build awareness for this incredible organ that we have of the brain and its capacity for change and, and for its um, implementation in education. So thank you. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you.